0: And welcome to this Tuesday edition of Back to the Bible. Today we are continuing our series, A Firm Grip on the Gospel. So, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through to 30, as Bible teacher John Newfeld brings us a message titled, Rejected by His Own.
1: No one likes to be rejected, to be cast aside, to no longer be invited to join in, to have a door closed that was once opened, to see the faces that once brightened to see us now turn into a frown of disapproval. That's deeply wounding. We like to think there's some place in this world where no matter if everyone else rejects us, in that place called home, we're always welcome. See, in order to understand the ministry of Jesus, we do well to combine two themes. You know, the welcome he receives in so many places and the rejection that he receives when he comes home. You know, today in our study of Luke, we'll examine the account of Jesus in Nazareth, where he's utterly rejected. His hometown closes the door to him and says, you're not welcome here anymore. Let's remember where we are in Luke. Up till now, we've not yet begun to examine the public ministry of Jesus. And Jesus has, in the book of Luke, spent 40 days in the wilderness where he's been tempted by the devil. And we come then to Luke's first mention of the public ministry of Jesus, and it's found in Luke four fourteen to 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Luke's gospel is interesting in this regard. Jesus, he said, returned to Galilee, and we might be forgiven for assuming that this must have occurred immediately after the temptation in the wilderness, but that's not the case. You know, I've said that Luke is chronological. In most cases, it's actually not so right here. In Matthew, the situation in Nazareth, which Luke will describe to us, will occur only in chapter 13. And Mark, which is a shorter book, that incident doesn't occur until chapter 6. But in Luke, the incident that happens in Nazareth, well, it happens right here in chapter 4. So how do we make sense of that? Well, we do by looking again at what we've just read. Jesus returned to Galilee. So when did he do that? And Luke doesn't tell us. But if we try to get a harmony of the four Gospels, it seems that Luke chapter 4 verse 14 begins the second year of his ministry, not the beginning at all. In short, for reasons that Luke never addresses, Luke begins his story of the ministry of Jesus not in the first year, but in the second year. And that is a lot less strange than we might think. Matthew also has very little data about the first year of Jesus' ministry. Indeed, if we want information about the first year of Jesus' ministry, we have to go to the Gospel of John. There we read about everything from Jesus turning the water into wine, to encountering a rabbi named Nicodemus, to Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. You know, sometimes when Bible scholars define the first year of Jesus' public ministry, they refer to it as the year of obscurity. Well, it's not technically correct, but it is true that it was not until the second year of ministry that his ministry in Galilee took off. That doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't preaching to crowds before, but not in Galilee. And Luke begins in the beginning of Christ's second year. And so Luke simply bypasses the first year of ministry. At some point in time, says Luke, he returned to Galilee. And when he returns, Luke wants us to know that he does so in the power of the Spirit. That is, he comes anointed by the Holy Spirit for his ministry. See, at all times, the Holy Spirit is empowering Jesus. The miracles he's doing, as well as his powerful preaching, all of this is because of the Holy Spirit. And John tells us that while he's in his first year of ministry, he's in Jerusalem at the Passover, and many believed in his name because of the signs he was doing. So that is to say that even in the first year of ministry, Jesus was also doing miracles. Nonetheless, he comes to Galilee, and he's teaching in the synagogues, and all are glorifying him, that is, everyone speaking well of him. And for Luke, this is an appropriate moment to tell of the public ministry of Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth. So let's read about it. Luke 4:16 to 19 And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, that thing that we read here is even slightly strange. At first, it was natural that Jesus would make his way to Nazareth. By now, he had made the base of his operations in Capernaum. That's a town that was located on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and a city that was central to his ability to get to as many Galilean towns as possible. Nazareth, on the other hand, was inland, and it was out of the way. But nonetheless, the man who was exciting the crowds, first in Judea, now in Galilee, has come home. And we read that Jesus, as was his custom, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Note well that throughout Jesus' ministry, his custom was always that he would be in a local synagogue on every single Sabbath. Now I know there are many that assume that Jesus was breaking the Sabbath, but he never did. Remember that accusation came from his enemies. In truth, Jesus never broke the Sabbath. It was his consistency to be in a place of worship every Sabbath that was in keeping with the fourth command, which is a command like all the others, which Jesus kept. So the fact that he's in Nazareth and that he's in a synagogue on the Sabbath, all that's normal, and by the way, might I add here, we should learn this from Jesus so that on the Lord's Day, all of us who believe in Christ are found in a local place of worship in a church. That should be our custom as well. Another thing that's normal is that he stood up to read the scriptures on that day. You know, synagogue rulers in that day always had individuals who were known to be teachers and famous, and if they happened to attend any synagogue, they were called upon to read the scripture, and they would be encouraged to deliver a sermon. And so on this occasion, the scroll of Isaiah is given to him. So every local synagogue has the scrolls of the scripture there, and they're the scriptures that we now call the Old Testament. So in this instance, Jesus is reading from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. Now, there are two possibilities regarding the passage Jesus read. I mean, it's possible that it was simply the scheduled lesson for that Sabbath. But it's also possible that Jesus was given the freedom to read a passage of his choosing. Now, whatever is the case, nonetheless, this is what Jesus read. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. And it's an interesting text because it's a messianic scripture. Now, it is true that from one perspective, it might seem that Isaiah the prophet is describing himself in this passage. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And that means that the spirit of God is now speaking through the mouth of the prophet. But Isaiah chapter 61, taken as a whole, tells the story of the ashes of destruction that Israel has experienced will be replaced by the oil of joy. The former devastation will be replaced by the rebuilding of ruined cities and injustice will forever end. The passage is about the end times when the Messiah comes and brings wickedness to an end and ushers in the kingdom of God and protects his people. And so, specifically, the two verses that Jesus read on that Sabbath day were about the anointing of the Spirit on God's chosen Messiah. The Hebrew word for anointing is Mashiach, Messiah. The Messiah will bring good news to the poor. He's going to bind up the brokenhearted. He's going to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now, technically, this liberty to the captives, this was in the year of Jubilee, where Israel was supposed to, every 50 years, cancel all debts and allow people who had lost property to return to the property of their heritage and claim it again. It was a time of forgiveness and grace. But in Isaiah, the Jubilee year is being compared to the great coming of the Messiah. When the Messiah releases people from sin and from bondage and from all the oppression of the evil that has ever come over them, the Messiah will open prison doors and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, announcing salvation for all who would seek Him. Now, if you heard that passage read in your local church and the famous visiting preacher was there to preach to you, you would be expecting a rousing sermon about the end times. But as we're going to see, that's not what Jesus does at all. His sermon is not going to be about the bright future that the Lord has for his people. I mean, that would have been a great sermon, but given the context that the Messiah, the one hoped for in the Scripture, had just shown up in the synagogue of Nazareth on that morning. No, no. A sermon on the end times is inappropriate. Rather, Jesus says words that shook that synagogue to its core. He says to them, today, as you're hearing me read this passage, this scripture right now has been fulfilled among you. Someone must have leaned over to someone else in that synagogue and said, what did he just say?
0: This is Back to the Bible, Bible teaching you can trust. Kingston Keswick Convention continues throughout the week. Starting at 7 o'clock each evening with Back to the Bible's Dr. John Newfeld at the Boulevard Baptist Church, except for Friday, Youth Night, at which time the speaker will be Reverend Dr. Agilent Ferdinand. The lunch hour meetings also continue through to Friday, starting at 12.15 each afternoon. Reverend Napoleon Black will be at the Jamaica Theological Seminary. Reverend Leslie Pinnock at the monabaptist church reverend Adenir jones at the webster memorial church reverend mark dawes at the bethel baptist church reverend horace bennett at the waltham park new testament church and reverend dexter johnson at the east queen street baptist church and a reminder that this coming saturday january 27 the men's gathering will be held at the Guardian Group Head Office Seminar Room located at 12 Trafalgar Road in New Kingston starting at 8 a.m. sharp. At this event, Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld will be sharing on expository preaching after which there will be a panel discussion. Please note that the space is limited and so you must register to attend this event. To register for the men's gathering please call 876 809 7464 that number once again 876 809 7464 now as we get back to the bible let's rejoin bible teacher john newfield with the conclusion of today's study.
1: Luke four twenty 20-21 And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. Notice the sequence. First, Jesus rolled up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. The attendant would then very carefully replace that scroll back into its container. And that's because every local synagogue contained the Scriptures. And the Scripture would be used regularly. During the week, children would be taught by it. I mean, that's one of the reasons that the Jews had among the highest literacy rates in the ancient world. Everyone was expected to read and comprehend Scripture. But on the Sabbath, the scroll was to be read, then explained to all the people. It was supposed to be what we call today expository preaching. Preaching means explaining the Scripture to God's people. That's what Jesus was supposed to do. Now, our text tells us that Jesus read the Scriptures, and then he sat down. Now, in modern churches, preachers stand up to preach... But not in the ancient synagogues. I mean, some synagogues would have a very ornate chair, and they would call that chair the seat of Moses. And it was called that because the person teaching from that chair was required to be an expert in scripture. They were well trained, they could then address the congregation with the authority of Moses, you know, as if, you know, Moses were himself speaking. You might remember Matthew 23 verse 2 where Jesus said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. That's what he's referring to. Now of course we don't know if the synagogue in Nazareth actually had a seat called Moses' seat, but nonetheless, they had a seat from which all teaching was done. And now the hometown boy who had become famous was going to teach them. They're spellbound. And he says Isaiah chapter 61 is not about a future time. It's about this very time right now. As you sit here in this synagogue in Nazareth, this scripture is now fulfilled. Mark this moment, he says, the kingdom of God has now broken into Nazareth when I came back. That's quite a thing to say. Now notice what happens next. Actually, two things happen. It's found in verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? I mean, those are two reactions and they contradict each other. See, the first reaction is that they recognized how well he spoke. And that was surprising. Perhaps when he had been a boy and grown up, they had not seen that side of him. And it might be that just like, you know, when he was 12 and his mom and dad saw him dialogue with the country's leading rabbis in Jerusalem, they're surprised they had no idea of the capacity of Jesus. Situation sounds very much like that now. Everyone in the town is taken aback. Everyone says, that's really amazing. But when they get beyond that, they begin to remark about the actual claims he's making. And all of that's over the top, they say. Hey, we know who you are. You're the carpenter's son, and you're no more than that. We watched you grow up. You played in our streets, and yes, it was hard when your dad died, and you had to shoulder the burden of the family, but that's it. You're still Joseph's son. We'll have none of that other nonsense that you've been peddling in all those other places, not over here, because we know you. Verses 23 to 27. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naam and the Syrian. Now clearly Jesus is aware of what these people are thinking. He knows they want proof. Do a miracle, they say. You'll have to do a miracle to convince us. Now on that point, one thing the miracles were never designed to do was to convince the skeptic. The miracles of Jesus actually performed at least three functions. You know, the first uh, Matthew 9:36, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, that is the miracles have something to do about Jesus compassion. You know, disease, demons, death, Jesus performs miracles because they are suffering and helpless. Second reason he does miracles is a sign of the kingdom. Luke 11:20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That is, the King, the Messiah, and the kingdom he introduces puts all evil to flight. So Jesus' miracles reflects his anger over evil and his passion for righteousness. But there's also a third reason he does miracles, and it's to help those who truly believe and yet are struggling. They are helped because of what they've seen. But to do miracles for the skeptic, that Jesus simply refuses. Later on, when even Herod himself wanted him to do a miracle, Jesus simply said, no. Jesus goes one step further. See, up to this point, the crowd in Nazareth has already been fairly annoyed and angry by what he's been saying. But what he says now puts them into a rage. Jesus gives two examples of miracles in Israel's past. The first is from Elijah the prophet, who at the direction of God shut up the skies so that King Ahab and his queen Jezebel would know that God controls the land. See, in that day, many in Israel suffered because of that. But the prophet was sent to a Gentile, a widow in the land of Sidon, and he supplied her with a miraculous supply of food. Well, the second example comes from Elijah's disciple. He's Elisha. That man cured a Syrian commander's leprosy. And the point is that the people of Israel who were so unbelieving, none of them received miracles of compassion. But here we have a Syrian military commander who was the object of God's compassion. I hope you see the point. Don't think because this is my hometown you'll be favored over others. For the people God favors have always been those who humble themselves and come to God for mercy. You you citizens of Nazareth, you'll have to do the same. You're going to have to humble yourself the way the Sidonian woman did and the way the Syrian commander did. You're no better than they are. Those words sounded very similar to what John the Baptist had said. You remember that the hypocritical religious teachers had come out to hear him and he had said, don't think that you can say that you have Abraham as your father for I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. You know, in short, not your Jewish heritage, that's what John said. And not the fact that you grew up next door to Jesus, that's what Jesus said in Nazareth. None of that's to your advantage. You've got to humble yourself like everyone else. That's an important message for us, don't you know? Those of us who have grown up in church and who have Christian parents, we have no advantage if we will not repent and become humble and bow our knees in submission to Christ and his commands. No advantage at all. Physical nearness to the gospel is of no advantage unless you abandon your fierce pride and submit. Well, we can imagine how those words went over in Nazareth. You know, the kid grew up in our streets, and now he thinks of himself as superior. It's outrageous. he will We'll never let him get away with that. I mean, who does he think he is? Luke four twenty-eight 28 to 30. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. There is on the outside of the contemporary city of Nazareth, there's a cliffside there, which has traditionally now been thought of as the very cliff that the citizens of Nazareth wanted to throw Jesus down. You know, if that traditional site is indeed the correct site, it's quite a steep cliff indeed. Had they thrown him down there, he would surely have died. The rocks at the bottom would have claimed his life. But we know that Jesus had not come to die in Nazareth. And every attempt of the evil one to put him to death before his appointed hour was to be thwarted, from the time that Herod wanted to kill him when he was a baby, to the time the people of Nazareth wanted to throw him off a cliff because they were so angry. And I'm not sure how he passed through their midst. I assume it had something to do with his authority, and it made it difficult for them to carry out their evil desires. But of one thing we can be absolutely certain. Jesus would have no place on earth which he would call his home. There would be no earthly place of safety for him. There would be no hero's welcome among the members of his home village. And that was good. Later on, Jesus would say in Luke chapter 9 verse 58, And Jesus said to them, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, and that nowhere included the place where he was raised. It was fitting that the author of our salvation would find his welcome in the presence of his heavenly Father and never in the presence of sinful men and women. So what's the lesson? You may have grown up in a Christian home and went to Sunday school all your life, but you need to humble yourself just like the prostitute did and the tax collector did, and you have to be counted as one of them. And if you're not going to do that, you're not going to have the chance for the eternal kingdom of God. Do not look to this earth as the place of your source of blessing and as the place of your safety. Look to the Father and look to Him alone.
0: Thanks so much, Dr. John. You know... Jesus said that a prophet is not accepted in his own home, and it made me think of those who know Jesus but have unsaved family. How might you counsel them about sharing the gospel to those that are closest?
1: Yeah, I know this that um, most of us need to confess before the Lord that we are, you know, we (laughs) we have difficulty doing that uh, because you know the history that we share with people. Um, And I think many of us should be praying that God would bring uh, other people into the lives of our loved ones who will also testify about Christ. We're going to need help. That's, I think, the first thing that we should admit. And then secondly, uh, we should also recognize that when it comes to our closest relatives, that we need to be praying a great deal more. Because something greater than our words has to suffice at this moment. We know that. And so we need to depend upon God to do that Uh, On our behalf,
0: thanks for joining us today. Here on Back to the Bible, brought to you by Back to the Bible Broadcast Jamaica in partnership with listeners who give in support of this ministry. Our office is located at shop number 22, Hagley Park Plaza, Kingston 10. Our office hours are from Mondays through to Fridays from 8.30 a.m. through to 4 p.m. We can be contacted via email at backtothebibleministry at gmail.com. Our office number is eight seven six nine two six five seven six five, and our cell and WhatsApp number is eight seven six three three seven six two nine five. To listen to this study again or some of our previous studies, they are available in our free mobile app along with other Bible engagement material. Just look for BTTB Jamaica in your app store. That's BTTB Jamaica. You can also listen and download our studies from other podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Spotify, and Amazon Music. Be sure to look for Back to the Bible, Jamaica. Before we go, for this week only at the Kingston Keswick Convention, copies of our 2024 calendar will be available for $500, cash only, at the Source of Light book table. That's our 2024 calendar available for $500 cash only at the Source of Light book table at the Kingston Keswick Convention. Please join us tomorrow as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke with a message entitled Authority. That's tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Jamaica leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.